Hello. Those of you who've uh, managed to catch up with the recent Napoleonic Cues episode with Phil Ball and Rachel Blackman Rogers will have heard me putting to both Phil and Rachel the idea that they might take the chair themselves to explore their own areas of interest in a little more detail. And uh, here's the first of those uh, bonus episodes for you, those bonus conversations. Over the course of the next hour, you'll hear Rachel in conversation with the supervisor of her PhD, namely Andrew Lambert. He's Lawton Professor of Naval History and uh, Director of the Lawton Naval Unit housed at King's College London's Department of War Studies. Andrew's work focuses on the naval and strategic history of the British Empire between the Napoleonic Wars and the First World War. But he's certainly done a lot on our period, not least his book on the War of 1812, which uh, you may well have spotted in your local bookshop or bookstores. It's called The Challenge, Britain Against America and the Naval War of 1812, which won the 2014 Anderson Medal. And of course, uh, talking to Andrew will be Rachel, a familiar voice. She's talked us through segments all the way from the glorious 1st of June up to the Battle of the Nile in our most recent main episode. It's been great to have her on and uh, time to hand over to Rachel now. OK, so I thought that today it would be really great to talk uh, in greater depth and about um, events, particularly during the 1790s, and thinking about um, certainly what people who are less um, aware of sea power and uh, naval power during the, that period, uh, what they might be interested in. Um, so I thought we might begin by thinking about for people who have come to this topic through fiction, what might misconceptions might they have. Um, I mean, I personally haven't actually read any. Um, I've only seen Hornblower on television, <laughs> Master and Commander. I don't know about you, Andrew. I mean, that's about the limit of what I've um, I've engaged with. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a there's a problem here that the fiction necessarily skims the top of what's going on, uh, and so. In Master and Commander, for example, we get two stories, both of which are quite closely based on real events. Uh, they're then wound in together uh, with a strong hint of things that didn't happen in the, the revolutionary or Napoleonic eras at all. So by the end, um, we have a kind of Darwin-esque um, journey ashore. Fiction does a great job of bringing people into the field. It, it's, it's one of the ways in which people are coming to naval history. And certainly Hornblower is both very well written and very reliable in terms of the action, the things that are happening. Uh, Forrester took great pains in this, both in his Age of Sail and in his 20th century uh, fiction writing about the Navy. Um, and O'Brien certainly takes serious attention to the growing body of knowledge about the Navy in this era. But at the same time, he also resorts to extensive borrowing, shall we say, from Lord Cochrane's memoirs and uh, and the odd other source too, um, which means that some of the events portrayed are as true as they were when Lord Cochrane wrote them down. Um, <laughs> not an entirely certain guarantee that they were actually as Cochrane wrote them. Uh, in the original novel, Master and Commander, O'Brien quite literally quotes Cochrane. Uh, mm in one key passage, one of the more exciting passages. 
So there is a degree of veracity between all of this. But of course, the things that attract attention and make great fiction are not the long, boring cruises, the patrols, the convoy work, the dull business of actually applying sea power. Um, they're only the, the exciting bits about engaging the enemy more closely, capturing prizes, um, and doing daring things. So if you want the edited highlights of the naval war, that's great. But if you want to understand just what a grim, attritional business it is, it's worth marrying that up with some sense of how many ships were lost through shipwreck, through accidents, uh, the casualties that were suffered through disease, um, tropical diseases, the more conventional things like scurvy. Um, this is an expensive, costly, deadly business. And the main strength of the Royal Navy is its persistence and the depth and quality of its resources. That doesn't mean it gets off scot-free. It means that it's less likely to suffer from marine accident, less likely to suffer from disease, but it is going to be impacted by all of those things right the way through the war. More British sailors die of disease and of marine accident than die in battle. So battle is not the thing that's killing most of the men uh, or indeed the officers of the Royal Navy. It is being at sea in a wooden sailing ship that is the most deadly thing they do. Yes, I think that that's that's true, and that really doesn't come across in in fiction at all. And I think there's also that tendency, um, especially as Cochrane does form the basis of quite a bit of fiction, and he was quite a rogue in many ways. There's always that sort of subtle feeling of piracy um, and the drive for personal gain, which actually not that many officers were motivated but I mean yes they wanted to you know no one didn't want prize money of course but uh, they weren't all just motivated by that many of them were looking and thinking about the bigger strategic picture rather than individual gain. Yeah I think there's there's some interesting things to be said about how the state and institutions within the state reward naval activity so first of all, we have the prize money system. If you capture the enemy's vessel, a warship or a, a merchant vessel, and it's condemned in a court, you will get a percentage of the money paid for that vessel. So capturing a, a ship of the line could make you quite rich. Capturing a Spanish frigate loaded with gold or silver could make you very, very rich indeed. Uh, and several officers did make unbelievably large fortunes. So prize money is an incentive. It's particularly an incentive for those who serve in detached formations, cruiser squadrons, and it's often used as a reward for meritorious service that you are then sent with your ship to a place where you may well capture prize and you and all of your crew will, will gain some reward from this. So it's not simply about prize money, it's also about using prize money as a recognition the Lloyd's Patriotic Fund, which is organised by Lloyd's of London, but not actually part of Lloyd's of London, has a, another mechanism. So they start to issue prize swords, which are valued at 25, 50 or 100 guineas. These are the equivalent of the gigantic wristwatches that <laughs> certain sports players like to wear. Um, they make it obvious that you are very successful. And often captains who are awarded one of these 100 guinea swords will have a portrait commissioned of themselves with 
the sword in hand. Um, and you can often find in sailor rooms, they come as a pair. Here is the man with his sword. Here is the sword. You can have all of this. And this is a great esteem indicator. Uh, very few officers took the money. Money was an option, but very few took the money. Most took the sword because the sword said something about you that the money couldn't. Yes, and I think it was um, really indicative as well because Lloyd's and there was also uh, there were also other associations. I think it was called uh, particularly the Maritime Association, where the city is invested expresses its investment in the navy and is in trying to encourage trade protection as a priority. And they're using that mechanism that you've just described to ensure that the Navy is focused on its primary objective, which is to protect British interests, protect British trade. And I think that relationship's really important and the way it's expressed. Yeah. And this emphasises how the British state is increasingly becoming a warfare state. It's focused on generating power. Lloyds of London is also heavily involved in raising the money for loans. So the city is where the money's coming from, but it's also the place where trade is being done. And the trade associations working through Lloyds have a lever at the Admiralty. So when they have a convoy to send, they tell the Admiralty, the Admiralty provides the convoy. It's synergistic. And apparently Lloyds List, the great register book of all the merchant ships, is rattling up and down Fleet Street and the Strand most days so that these convoys can be put together, this ship and this ship and this ship, and here they are all marked in the book. And the correspondence between the Secretary of Lloyd's and the Secretary of the Admiralty is endless, ongoing, and and very personal. These two men know each other um, institutionally and personally. So the whole system is becoming more and more effective at waging war. And if we look at the 20th century, we're familiar with the mobilization of the two, two world wars of the 20th century. But this is a world war. It's waged around the world. It's waged not just by states, but also by multinational corporations. East India Company is a massive presence in Leadenhall Street in the city. And what it says and what it does matters. So the state is negotiating all of these relationships in order to create the ability to endure what is an existential crisis. Yeah. That's about resource mobilization. It's also about building and maintaining consent, because this isn't a revolutionary French government that is using large amounts of force to coerce people. It's negotiating this relationship. And part of that negotiation is the relationship between the state, the Navy, the officers and the men of the Navy. And that's going to become an issue because the state quite literally drops the ball on this one. They they miss a critical moment when they can help to maintain that relationship. And they have to be forcibly reminded that they've failed in their duty. And the consequences of that are that everything then gets back to normal. But it's a big wake up call. Yeah. You mean the mutinies at the Nor in, in 1797? Yeah, that was uh, a huge upheaval and expression of um, the men feeling that they weren't being rewarded, they weren't being compensated. They watched the officers um, get their pay increased and get shore leave and and get these better paying conditions, and they weren't really uh, seeing any of that. Um, And yet they were being asked to take greater risk. Um, Their lives were equally risked, and they had to trust their officers. 
They did. And that, that bond of trust between officers and men is critical. Um, if you look at how ships perform in battle, it's not how they perform in battle, it's how well they've synergized that effort before battle, how much the men trust the officers, particularly the captain. And of course, at the Spithead Mutiny, um, there are two things that are really grinding on the men. One is the army's had a pay rise and the Navy hasn't, which is absurd. You know, Britain is a maritime power, it's on continental military power. And secondly, they're objecting to short rations. And as Samuel Pepys had reminded everybody, uh, sailors grumble most about their bellies. Um, if you don't feed them properly, if you stint on their on their rations, you've got trouble. If you then insult them by not giving them a pay rise when the army gets one. Uh, so Spithead is a very orderly dis industrial dispute. It, it, it isn't in any way revolutionary. Uh, the nor no. is different. The nor looks like it's a revolution. Um, and it's not entirely clear even now what is going on there. But at Spithead, the men who actually matter, the petty officers, the long-serving ratings, they're the ones who are running this process. It's all very controlled. It's a refusal to go to work unless the French come out, in which case we're back at work and we will do exactly what we have to do. So this is something we're all too familiar with in 2023, a withdrawal <laughs> of, of labour by state servants who feel they've been under under rewarded. So the Spithead mutineers are the nurses and doctors um, of 2023. They're just saying, no, we're not going to do this because we don't think we're getting a fair uh, share of what's going on here. And interestingly, in both situations, the context is uh, the spiralling cost of living, which was happening during the Revolutionary Wars as well. So your pay didn't go as far. They hadn't had a pay rise for 140 years. Yeah. And also that uh, increase in risk, because obviously in our health sector with COVID, there's been an increase in, in risk and um, yeah, people, people won't take it and not unreasonably perhaps want to be rewarded. Yeah. So I, th I think what we need is, uh, is some naval fiction that engages with these issues um, uh, rather than the, the hurly-burly of Lord Cochrane and his, his exciting times. You know, what is it that holds navies together? We have this literature for the First World War. We have it for the Second World War. Uh, we don't yet have it. Um, what we have from the Great War against France from 1793 onward of course, is a bunch of memoir literature. Um, I joined the Navy and it was terrible and they, they treated me very badly, literature. Um, all of which, when you read it, actually makes it clear that everybody at sea treats sailors badly. The Navy treats them less badly than merchant ship organisations. Many of these men found themselves on the other side of the world, abandoned by their merchant ship uh, without any pay. Uh, the Navy never stopped their pay. They might have treated them in other ways. And the literature was generated as part of a campaign against flogging and impressment in the 1820s and 30s. And it actually tells us a lot more about what people were worried about post-war than what was really happening during the war. And the men who are producing this literature are quite clearly borderline or indeed illiterate. This is a literature which is being created by an amanuensis, somebody who's taking this down and creating a version of this memoir which serves an agenda point. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And actually, impressment was much less um, 
widely used than people think. You know, 80% of the Navy during those revolutionary wars was were volunteers. Yeah. It didn't actually pet. Nobody really wanted to use impressment as the means of securing seamen. No, there's. I think the modern understanding is that most professional sailors in, in the deep water trades understood that in wartime it was an occupational hazard that you may well be impressed. Um, and it was better if you were going to be impressed to take the bounty and join on as a volunteer. So some of those volunteers volunteered because they got an extra payment uh, and it meant they entered the ship possibly at a higher rate. Uh, so there are means in which you can persuade people not to resist joining the service and, and monetary rewards uh, and promotion are, are good. There is also a, a sense that this is a national effort. This isn't a small war against a, a similar organization. This is an existential conflict. Um, the war aims of the French Revolution do not include the survival of the British monarchy or indeed the British state uh, or what we would call the British Empire. Uh, they do involve total overthrow. And as a result, that changes the rules for everybody. It changes them in two ways. I think, first of all, it reduces opportunities for the kind of social engagement that you find in the middle of the 18th century. There is so much at stake that suspicion between sectors of society has risen. There is doubt um, in the 1750s. If the crew didn't want to go to sea, they would tell the captain, and um, it would be dealt. It would be dealt with fairly positively. Um, in the 1790s, that isn't going to happen. The threat is different, uh, and the relationships across society are different as well. So, as the stakes of war rise, the level of coercion the state is prepared to use necessarily rise as well. Yeah. So there's no real choice. I mean, there's. There are two threats, really, the unlimited threat of invasion and foreign interference. Yes. Um, and um, interestingly, if we compared that to today, you could argue that uh, Russia uh, has uh, issued an unlimited threat of invasion and invaded Ukraine, but equally an unlimited threat of interference in British politics. Yes. And so that's quite an interesting separation of those threats um, and how that how that's interpreted, whereas in the Revolutionary Wars, they're both focused on Britain uh, quite, quite constant, in quite a concentrated way. Um, I was also thinking about why the French struggled to pull together their navy and how the, um, His Majesty's Navy sort of dominated them psychologically. Um, and I think the revolution has a lot to, to do with that and the ideology of equality, which destroyed discipline within the French Navy it had been underinvested in, money had been wasted uh, in trying to build the Cherbourg breakwaters, um, and and they were in a and their officer corps had been completely decimated. And you can't really rebuild that, can you, very quickly? No, I think the the problem for the French is is, is a compound of, of all of those. Interesting, I've been looking at what's happening in Russia in 1919 and the sailors have started the revolution, but by 1919, Trotsky is convinced they're going to have to remove all of the communists from the ships because they're not working. Uh, this level playing field for everybody to have a voice in the running of a battleship doesn't work. It doesn't work in 1919. It doesn't work in the 1790s either. So 
even if the French are enthused to go to fight because of their revolutionary beliefs, they don't have the skill sets or the practical experience. And you see this in a number of battles. Order breaks down. Um, seamanship is at a discount because the people who are actually familiar with sailing these large, complex machines aren't around anymore. So the French end up having to fight battles in a relatively static way. They, they're not going to do anything dynamic in the battle. And the contrast with what they're doing on land is really very telling. The revolutionary armies are commanded by NCOs, very junior officers like Napoleon. They know enough and they have the resources to fight very effectively against static old-fashioned armies. But the Royal Navy isn't static or old-fashioned. It's very dynamic and very aggressive. And the last war between Britain and France had ended with a smashing British victory at the Saints. It had ended with another humiliation for the French with the Third Relief of Gibraltar in 1782. The French Navy came out of that war. The only thing they could brag of was that they hadn't lost the Battle of the Chesapeake Capes, <laughs> which becomes the basis for American independence. But they had not performed particularly well in the old days. It wasn't that the French were peer competitors of the British. They simply weren't. And taking away their officer corps and, and running out of food and all the other basic stores doesn't improve things. So the powerful navy that the French have built by 1790, uh, which is against the, set against the British, probably the, the most powerful fleet they'd ever had, um, disappears. Uh, quite a lot of it is lost in shipwreck. Others are lost in the, in the, the disaster at Toulon when the, the Toulonais rise against the revolution. Um, and then they lose more in battle. So they're constantly trying to catch up and they're never going to have a big enough fleet to win the great naval battle, they're always going to rely on an ally, and that will necessarily be Spain, and the Spanish will never deliver. Um, when the Spanish finally get a fleet up to Brest to join the French, neither of them are in a fit state to go to sea, uh, and their prospects against the British Grand Fleet at that stage were no better than they were in 1805. Yeah. So they simply don't have the skills. They're not at sea often enough to get the seamanship training. They don't have large reservoirs of skilled deep ocean seafarers to man their ships with. So they're having to man their ships with coastal sailors, um, river navigators, and anybody else they can get their hands on. They run out of men early, and they never get around that. The French have run out of sailors long before the end of this war. Yes, I mean, I've I've read accounts where they try to use soldiers, which is obviously not going to work. Um, and then they start putting uh, their men out of privateers and fishing boats. And once you start depleting your fishing fleets, that's going to cause severe problems uh, for feeding the nation. And I think people often forget how hungry France was at this time. Um, their own policies in 1793 had actually eliminated their food import business and they relied on Egypt for, for feeding southern France, essentially. Um, and they, I think the effect of that, even when they quickly reinstituted and tried to rebuild that, if arguably led to the Egyptian campaign of 1798 and that need for food security. There'd been a big lobby within the um, French convention uh, lobbying for an invasion of Egypt in order to secure these food supplies. Yeah. Um, and I think that often gets overlooked. 
Yeah, I think there's there's a kind of old narrative that it's about empire and, and Napoleon wants to march to to India. Well, probably he does. Um, if your hero is Alexander the Great, marching to India is an obvious thing to do. But it's not Napoleon who takes that choice. He's not in charge. He is one of the generals, and he's he's sent off to Egypt. And yes, Egypt is you know is a very attractive target. Um, and it's also a replacement for the empire that the French have very obviously lost in the Caribbean. Um, yes. So the, the loss of the Caribbean empire brings with it the loss of a very large proportion of France's ocean-going maritime population, because the shipping that serviced that ends up drifting off into privateering, and most of those people get locked up for the duration of the war. So the British are accelerating the depletion of French manpower, not just by fighting them, but also when they capture them, by locking them up and keeping them. Privateers are not released. They're not exchanged in peace t- in wartime. So the great prison at Dartmoor is built to house privateers. And it's opened in the, the eight, late 1800s, and it will be filled with Frenchmen and Americans by the end of the war. And it's a very good place to lock people up. It's a long way away from anywhere. And in the winter, it's really quite cold and rather unpleasant. So what the British are doing is institutionalizing this idea that we have a very clear sense of what the threat is. The real threat to ocean-going shipping is privateers. And if we capture these people, because they are skillful, the French do have a privateering tradition, we do not exchange them. We keep them, and we keep them until the war ends. And we do that with the Americans and the French and anybody else who joins in. And we distinguish that with regular naval service where we do exchange people. So, again, there's a sense that the protection of trade is the ultimate test of your ability to command the sea. And the success of the British in doing this keeps the insurance premiums down, which keeps the City of London happy. And the City of London is happy then to reward those who make that possible. Um, after the Battle of the Nile, it's the City of London that gives Nelson £10,000. It's the East India Company. Um, it's the City of London that puts up the first statue of Nelson. It makes them a freeman of the city. The City of London is very much the heartbeat of the war effort. Without that money, without that trade, the war doesn't last very long. No, absolutely. Um, I think that that connection is often overlooked by um, by people when they're thinking about these wars and how important that was to the way Britain looked at the war. And from the very beginning, command of the sea was so important and was what Britain was establishing. It wasn't trying to uh, do anything particularly on the continent because it had to establish command of the sea as its priority. Um, and I think we could even argue that the... Um, France losing its Caribbean and, and, and colonies and its empire was accelerated by the glorious 1st of June and Jay's Treaty, which followed that, which deprived them of American shipping, which had been helping to support their colonies. Um, and, and then it was just a, a sort of slow process of, of that disappearing, really. I mean, the revolution had begun that, of course, with the spread of ideology. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's really important to see this as a long-term struggle with economic underpinnings. And the French end up having to conquer most of Europe to try and compensate themselves for the loss of that overseas trade. The Caribbean is the, is the motor of the French economy in the 1780s, 90s. 
um, San Domingue is the is the single most important piece of real estate on earth in terms of value. And in this case, the British don't take it away from them. The French throw it away themselves by changing their minds about slavery. And they release the slaves and they try and re-enslave them. Um, and the whole thing collapses in, in chaos. They then lose Martinique and Guadeloupe and their, their other possessions in the West Indies. And a very large proportion of their ocean-going shipping and their ocean-going seafarers. So that's a, a really major blow in this campaign. It's not accidental that the main activity of the French Navy from then on is Mediterranean, not Atlantic. The other thing that needs to be rem reminded uh, to most people is the main French naval base on the Atlantic at Brest and, and indeed at Rochefort, they're simply unable to build ships from the middle of the 1790s onwards because they can't get their hands on shipbuilding stores. And the British blockade isn't just cutting off French access to trade, it's also cutting it off its access to shipbuilding materials, particularly masts um, and Baltic timber, um, hemp, flax. In the Napoleonic Wars, the dockyard at Brest completed one battleship in 12 years. Uh, Portsmouth was completing two or three a year. So it's a, it's a com comprehensive success for what we often think of as an economic blockade, but the, the British are able to cut off all French access to that supply by dominating the Baltic, by closing down the channel, by controlling the Western approaches. And the French fleet is simply unable to challenge that. And it, is, it never manages to, to rise above that challenge in this period. But that's also a question of priority. If the French had decided that they were going to fight this war as a maritime war, they could have changed the way they allocated resources. But having conquered large parts of Europe and annoyed every other major power in Europe in the process, that was not an option. So before the end of the Napoleonic Empire, the Navy, the French Navy, loses its elite marine gunners who have to rebuild the artillery of the Grande Armée after the, the failed invasion of Russia. So the Navy is always second, and if there's a, a clash over resources, it's not going to win that argument. The French army wins that argument, uh, and Napoleon is always wanting something from the Navy, but he's not particularly generous in giving the Navy the things it needs. And the Republic isn't either. You know, the Republic no. can see quick fixes on shore. Uh, it's much easier to conquer most of Europe with an army than it is to think about fighting British at sea. Yes, in the I mean, in the French archives, there is plenty of evidence of uh, the ministers of marine, uh, Trugoet in particular, and uh, Vaublanc were lobbying constantly to get the French to pay more attention to their colonies, to their navy. Um, and even in uh, 1796, there's a Morat de Gaulle who... Uh, had commanded the um, raid on Ireland. Um, I know it's often called an invasion, but was far too small for an invasion yeah, and it was purely a raid and didn't even land anyway and couldn't have done really sailing in that at that time of weather with the weather and equally couldn't have um, achieved much because Britain commanded the the channel and they wouldn't have been able to resupply. So it was all a bit. Um, it's all been really quite mislabeled and misunderstood, I think. Um, and and Morat de Gaulle, what I was going to say, had said that no maritime federation was going to force Britain 
to accept the legitimacy of the French Republic. There was no way they were going to bend Britain's will. And I thought that was a really interesting observation, even before St. Vincent Camperdown and the Nile, which arguably gave Britain command of the sea and enabled them to exert that pressure that you've been describing onto that, that northern littoral and extend its strategy and push it down the rivers, the main rivers of Europe. I think people often forget about the pressure you can exert from a river mouth um, down into the centre of, of Europe. And that was where Britain's influence came from. Yeah, I think there's a there's a critical element in all of this. Uh, we look at securing command of the sea. We look at the great battles, smaller battles. But the payoff for all of this is on land. Command of the sea gives you results on land. For the British, the thing that has always frightened them from the Middle Ages onwards is the French occupying what we would now call Belgium, uh, the Austrian Netherlands, um, before that, the Spanish Netherlands, the River Scheldt, the estuary um, from Antwerp up to the to the sea, particularly the Dutch town of Lissingen, which is a major anchorage just in, in the secure waters of the Scheldt. That's where you assemble an invasion fleet to invade England. There's nowhere on the French coast you can do that before Cherbourg is finished in the 1830s. It's the only place you can invade England from. So when Napoleon is sent up to the French coast in the 1790s to plan an invasion. He goes, no, I can't do this. And it's not just because it's cold and wet and rather unpleasant. There, there's nowhere to go from. They don't have the resources under control to do this. We, all, we know about Napoleon's camp at Boulogne, but Boulogne is where the troops are camped. The deep water shipping to carry their guns, their horses and all their other stores is coming out of Lissingham. The British know this. So there's a raid in the 1790s to cut the canal that links um, Brussels with the, with the sea. And later on in 1801, after he's finished with the Baltic campaign, Nelson is planning an attack on Blessingham. He's planning to destroy the port as a base from which to invade Britain, to explode the threat that the French are trying to generate that there is an invasion. Ultimately, there isn't an invasion threat. The French simply cannot invade from the mainland without dominating the sea, and they're never in a position to do that. They don't have the naval resources to do that. But by holding a large army on the northwest coast of Europe, they can paralyze Britain as an offensive power. They can keep the British out of Europe while they fight in Europe. And the, the classic Boulogne camp manoeuvre is this. Napoleon says, I'm going to invade you. I've just struck a medal to say that as of 1805, I'm in London. Um, but actually, I'm in Austria and I've just surrounded an Austrian army at Ulm and taken them all prisoner. Uh, that's what the Boulogne camp is for. Every big move Napoleon makes with the Grand Armée starts with an assembly point in Boulogne. And in 1854, the French assemble an army at Boulogne for the war against Russia. It's an army that's sent into the Baltic. So it's an obvious place for the French to assemble an army. The decisive move of all of this period, right down to 1815, is the British invasion of the Scheldt in 1809, a massive amphibious raid, 40,000 men, the largest amphibious operation of the entire period, larger than Napoleon's Egyptian campaign. They capture Blessingen and destroy every last bit of it, the port, all of the dock facilities, all of the resources, it's flattened. Um, 
We often wonder what Nelson and Wellington talked about in September 1805 when they met in the anteroom of the, the war office waiting to talk to Lord Castlereagh. I think it's blindingly obvious they're talking about Nelson's desire to finish what he was planning in 1801. Once he comes back from defeating the French and Spanish fleets in 1805, he needs a general to command an amphibious army to take out Lusingham. He's already had William Bly draw a chart of the yep. Shell Estuary in 1801. He's working with the men who know the, that water really well, including smugglers and intelligence agents. He needs an amphibious army and a bright young general to finish this off. And so when Wellington says, I don't think any conversation I ever had so interested me, we now know what he's talking about. And Wellington is going to spend the rest of his life, quite literally, making sure that that threat does not revive after 1815. That is the whole of Wellington's post-war career. Britain able to defend itself because France cannot get into Belgium, cannot use the Scheldt as an invasion base. After the Blissingen is destroyed, half the home defence army in the UK is sent to Iberia. And that's the point at which the Iberian campaign goes from simply defending Lisbon to clearing Portugal. And then after Napoleon invades Russia, it goes to clearing Spain as well. The British are reacting to French failure. They're reacting to the failure of that threat to pin down their forces. You can see the British becoming more aggressive as that threat is reduced. In 1801, when Nelson commands the home defence fleet in the Channel, what's he doing? He's neutralising the French threat. He attacks the French gunboats at Boulogne to show that the Royal Navy can do what it likes, when it likes. It's not a brilliant success, but the fact the French had to spend all of their time defending their gunboats anchored up just off the beach meant that they were not going anywhere near the British coast. So it's yeah. just exploding that. And that's the point at which the French go, OK, we're going to have to do some kind of diplomatic deal here because we can't get at these people. We can't stop them. They've knocked out our Baltic allies. They forced the Russians to change sides. They're right on the coast. There's nothing we can do. We're, we're losing everywhere apart from in Europe. We've, we're going to lose the army in Egypt. We've lost the West Indies. So it's a compromised peace. It's not that the British have won. It's that they haven't lost. And they've used their control of the sea to ensure they, they don't lose the war. And that gives them a strong enough negotiating position for what is a compromise. Yeah. And yet it's interesting that uh, the traditional historiography tends to describe all this period as one of failure. And I think that's probably just based on the fact that the war carried on. But I think what it ignores is the fact that Britain won its war. What it was doing then was waiting for Europe to save itself. I mean, it could only support so much. It couldn't act. You know, there was no way Britain could put an army in to contain France. Europe had to do that for itself. And, you know, it took Jena Auerstadt and Austerlitz and the crushing of Prussia and Austria for them to reorganise and do what Britain did in the 1790s to face unlimited war and appreciate that that was what was going on. Yeah, I think it's really instructive that when Napoleon invades Russia in 1812, He's not fighting the Russians that he fought in 1805. The Russians have completely reorganized their military. They now have massive reserves, not just of manpower, but also of horsepower. And the 1812 campaign, by the time it gets back into Germany in early 1813, this is a testament to this sheer mass of horsepower the Russians were able to supply 
they're using up horses, but they have endless reserves. They have manpower reserves, but they have horsepower reserves. Napoleon loses his horsepower in Russia and he never recovers it. So his army is incapable of finishing off his battles. He has no cavalry uh, to finish the exploitation of victory. Uh, the Russians have endless cavalry and they're going to go all the way to Paris on horseback. And that's transformational. So the Russians have learned the lessons of war. And they've learned that you can't defeat Napoleon on the battlefield, but you can outmaneuver him. You can outperform him by building a, a bigger alliance. And yes, the British are, are using their success in the things that they do dominate as a way of leveraging those allies into action. Yeah. yeah. And you could argue that the, um, that I keep saying argue, that the Russian Navy learned those lessons before the Russian army because they were operating with the British in the North Seas fleet in 17, from 1795. And they were being put from 1798 in the Mediterranean fleet as part of the alliance. Officers were being trained on British ships. Squadrons, Russian squadrons were being taught by Admiral Duncan how to form line. And they were being inserted and integrated into British strategy, refitted in British dockyards, fed, their men were receiving hospital care. And so they were really learning how to be a Navy. Yeah, I think Britain's ability to use its its allies, what few it ever had, um, and the Russians were fairly intermittent allies. Um, shortly after the, the 1799 campaign, they were on the other side. And yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Tsar decided he was now one of Napoleon's friends. Uh, the Russian Navy had a long history of profiting from British expertise. So Peter the Great is hiring Jacobite English and Scots officers to create his navy. Catherine the Great is hiring English officers for her war with Turkey and with Sweden. Um, so in the Russo-Swedish War of the 1780s, there are British officers on both sides. Um, Nelson looked at joining this, um, this because he was unemployed at the time. Uh, fortunately, perhaps he didn't. So the Russians certainly are aware of this, and they're also acutely aware of just what a threat the Royal Navy is to them. And this is going to be critical in 1801. As soon as Nelson breaks through the, the Baltic barrier, the Russians change sides. It's going to be critical in 1807, 1811. The Russians don't really go to war with Britain. They go to war with, with Sweden. And as long as the British don't do anything too dramatic, most of the, the trade that the British absolutely depend on continues. The Russians are supplying the British with naval stores, timber, but also with grain. Uh, during those bad harvests, it's, it's northern European grain that's coming in uh, and keeping Britain fed. So the Russians understand that they can't defeat Britain either. Uh, and even in alliance with Napoleon, they're not going to win that because the French fleet has been destroyed and it, it doesn't have the morale to face the British again. The Russians have no intention of fighting that battle. So the British have that enormous advantage. And a lot of that is moral rather than material. British ships are enough. You, they don't necessarily have to fight. And, and that, that illusion of, of invincibility is, is absolutely critical. And that's why you get such a sharp reaction when things go wrong. It's not that you've lost a ship, it's that you've suggested you're not invincible, and that invincibility is critical to the way that the British are going to wage the war. 
But it, it, what was important was that it wasn't just an illusion. It was based on credible fact. You know, British aggression was based on British aggression. That reputation had basis. And what oh, yeah. enabled you to do them was not actually you could just turn up and that would be enough because you'd done it before. But if you uh, if you were just a fleeting being, that wasn't really going to to happen. In fact, one of um, the followers of the podcast had mentioned about how the French were psychologically intimidated by uh, His Majesty's Navy. But he then said that the American, when uh, the War of 1812 started, the Navy, um, the Royal Navy was intimidated by the Americans. And I don't really think that was the case. No, no. <laughs> no the, the War of 1812 is very interesting because the, the British end up doing the, the Americans the honor of treating them like the French, you know, as, as a major strategic threat. The, the American Navy is tiny. They have essentially six first-class frigates, three of which are outsized and, and more powerfully armed than anything the British have. They have a lot of privateers, which are very effective because it's a commercial activity. And the British don't have very much in the North American area, in the Caribbean or in on the North American station at the outbreak of war, because all of their best ships, men and assets are deployed engaging the French. So initially, the Americans score three successes with their outsized frigates against smaller and much weaker British units. Um, one of which is in need of a serious refit, and the other one is, is badly run, uh, and the third one is working its way up on a voyage to India. Um, one of those, two of those ships fight very well, given the odds. Uh, one of them doesn't. But as soon as we get a level playing field in, in June 1813, the Shannon takes the Chesapeake in 13 minutes, uh, which does restore invincibility because that's the fastest one of these battles has ever been finished that's pretty fast <laughs> it's unbelievably fast the american ship is well manned the american captain has already won a battle um, in command of another unit um it just makes a very small mistake and his ship is shot to pieces and uh, captured and the capture of the chesapeake is restores that sense of invincibility and for the rest of the war the british will be capturing the american navy and if you come to London and you go to the headquarters of the Royal Naval Reserve in London, it's HMS President in memory of the American flagship, which was captured in the spring of 1815 um, by HMS Endymion, which was a rather smaller ship. The Americans were better than the French. They had a very small navy with some excellent seafarers and, and a fairly large pool of skilled men. But they weren't as good as the British. Um, on a good day, the Royal Navy would beat anybody. And in this war, the Royal Navy ended up burning down Washington uh, and destroying the American economy, which is pretty much what they did to the French, although they never got to Paris. It's a bit further away from the sea. <laughs> the French end up losing the war on land in Europe, but they've lost the war economically and they've lost the war outside Europe already. What is Napoleon doing in Russia? He's trying to enforce the economic war against Britain. Why? because he's failed outside Europe. So Europe is just not big enough for Napoleon. He wants more. He wants a way of defeating the British. And Europe alone is not going to give him that. And all of his projects to build big fleets, to build new dockyards, he's building one at Antwerp, he's building one at Hamburg. Um, he's running away from the reality that he can't win that campaign 
without willing allies, and all he's got are dependents. And as soon as they realize just what it means to be allies of France, uh, they decide they'll change their minds. Uh, the Spanish are meant to be the great resource that is going to boost the French Navy. They rise in rebellion. And from that point on, Britain's war cannot be lost. Without Spain, France cannot win that, that naval war. They weren't going to win it with Spain probably anyway, but without Spain, it's utterly hopeless. And the Americans joining doesn't add very much because they don't have any line of battleships. They don't have a significant naval power that they could exert. And their attempt to conquer Canada fails as well. So they end up um, distracting the British a little, but not very much. Well, the war was almost over by then and we would have just... I would presume conveyed our convoyed our army over that was already battle hardened from the peninsula. Well, when the when when Napoleon abdicates the first time, the British army is in Bordeaux, and the government has a choice: they can send enough troops to defeat the Americans comprehensively and occupy large parts of the United States, or they could send about six or seven thousand men just to hold the situation and launch a few punitive raids around the Chesapeake Bay. And they take the second option because they would much rather dismantle the army and start paying off the national debt than engaging in a long war with the Americans. They don't want America. This isn't some second war of independence. The British aren't trying to reconquer America. They're trying to get the Americans out of Canada and keep them out. No. You know, British North America is what they're fighting for and the sanctity of their maritime trade. And the two treaties that end this period, the, the Vienna Congress and the Treaty of Ghent make it very clear that the British have won because their maritime belligerent rights policy is upheld by not even being mentioned. There's no discussion of the right to blockade. There is no discussion of Britain's declaration that they can stop and search neutral merchant ships on the high seas for contraband cargo. The Americans and the French are not allowed to discuss this and nor are the Russians. No, I mean, even in 1794, when they negotiated Jay's treaty, they wanted to bring, Washington was very keen to discuss Britain's belligerent rights. And Jay realised on arrival, yeah. and he arrived just at, as the glorious 1st of June had happened, that it wasn't even a negotiating no. point and he never brought it up. No, it's, um, and that's the difference between the Federalist regime, which was realistic, um, and the subsequent Republic. Democratic Republican regime, which was unrealistic uh, and ideologically rather closer to the French. Um, some of the views they're, they're expressing are, are very French. Uh, and they see British sea power as more of a threat than French military power uh, for fairly obvious reasons. But for, for Britain, the nightmare scenario is France, Russia and the United States in alliance against Britain on the issue of maritime belligerent rights. And that's why the diplomacy of particularly the Vienna Congress, but also the Ghent, uh, the Ghent settlement with the Americans is so important. This is about preserving the power that had been so successful in this war. It tells you what has won the war, because it's the thing that you won't allow anybody to even discuss at the end of it. Maritime belligerent rights, blockade, economic warfare. This is what ultimately is going to contribute to Britain winning the war. Um, Militarily, the British cannot defeat the French, but maritime economic warfare has created situations in which the French are forced into things which raise up against them a large European coalition. I think you know, 
it struck me that this is a, a long period and we quite often skim across the highlights, but the, the fundamentals were all in place before this war begins. Uh, Prime Minister Pitt, he's been raised to, to fight this war. His father fought the French in the 1750s and 60s and was thinking about it right down to the day he died. Um, he's been raised and trained to think about this, and he's brought to it also that concern for the stability of the finances. So what he adds to his father's approach is, is certainly a concern to, to maintain the ability of the state to fight for longer. And that ultimately, it's a test of endurance. You can win at sea, but you're not going to win the war unless you can keep doing that over and over and over again. So that synergy between the state, the city of London, the financial sector, the industrial base, the development of resources, and, and the creation of a very modern looking warfare state is critical. The French have a very big and impressive army, but the British have a very much larger warfare state, which is capable of, of supporting a much broader approach. The French are living on plunder, the British are living on loans, which they're going to pay back. And yeah. if, you want, if you want to know how important those loans are, they don't really get on top of paying them down until about 1910. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what the French Revolution and Napoleonic conflict looks like. It's a long-term drag on British politics. Um, William Ewart Gladstone resigns as prime minister in 1893 because he won't spend any more money on the Navy because they have to get on top of that debt burden. And that is the Napoleonic war debt. They just get it going and the Boer War interferes and they're just getting it going again in 1910. And then World War I breaks out. So debt and the probity of the state as a financial organization is really central to all of this. You can't have a British warfare state without secure finances and a very clear commitment to pay your debts on time and in full. And all of that revolves around trade and resources. So that state-city partnership is at the heart of this in ways that it's not in any other state at this point. The French think about warfare in terms of armies. The British think about warfare in terms of money. Uh, money and skilled manpower and ships is what is going to win this. Yes, and I think that's also Pitt's legacy. I think he, without him, a lot of that wouldn't have been put in place. It was him who established the sinking fund to repay debt. And that was crucial to Britain's ability to raise low interest credit. Yep. Um, and his financial and even his strategic perceptions, which are often underestimated, were impressive. I think from the very beginning, he understood the nature of the war and the strategy. It wasn't that he was driven by um, Henry Dundas's um, preoccupation with the colonies. It, he was very focused and he knew exactly what he was doing and was very skillful at it. Yeah. The, the campaign in the West Indies, um, it's not about capturing French colonies. It's about destroying the French maritime economy. Uh, yeah. And hoovering up France's seafaring population and its shipping and the money that's going to fund the war going forward. There's also, of course, a very powerful cultural element to this, which we could talk about forever. But <laughs> creation of a British national consciousness to support this war effort. There's a whole raft of things coming in, in literature, in art, in, in all cultural forms. Us and them becomes much clearer. 
And the art of us and the art of them is, you know, Gilray does it better than anybody in the caricatures, but it's there in every piece of art you look at. Who are we? Who are they? Why are we different? Why are we going to win? What's the matter with them? These are really important. <laughs> and this this sets up the next century of, of British cultural evolution. Now, that's the springboard. It's not the 18th century carrying on. It's a new culture. It's coming out of this period. And the men who finished the war are all pit nominees. Liverpool Prime Minister, Castlereagh Foreign Secretary, Canning intermittently Foreign Secretary, and of course Wellington, who by 1814 all of a sudden moves from being a theatre commander of the army to being the ambassador in Paris, a delegate at the Congress of Vienna, and ultimately the man who finally snuffs out France as a great power by destroying Napoleon's army in 1815, and then spends the rest of his life making sure that France does not rise again and there isn't another one of these wars on his watch. Really interesting, that, that continuity. Even as the headline figures drop away, Castlereagh and, and, and Liverpool die in the 1820s, but Wellington's still there in 1852. Um, he lives to see a new French empire set up, but he doesn't get the chance to deal with it. Yeah, that that passing of the baton, I think, is is really important. It's that uh, contract between the past and the future uh, that's that's really important and creates that enduring sense. Um, <laughs> The transmission of experience uh, in all aspects of this is critical. Nelson isn't a great commander because he just thought about these things. He's a great commander because he'd served under great admirals. He'd learned much from Lord Hood, Earl St. Vincent, um, and that is being transmitted. And the men who carry on after him have learned from him. Um, the last of his captains is still commander-in-chief at Plymouth in 1856. So. Nelson doesn't die at Trafalgar. His legacy lives on and it continues to inspire the Navy right through to the end of the war and beyond. Mm, yeah, I think on that note, we, we probably need to finish. But that was great. Thank you so much, Andrew. No, not at all. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure. And with that, conversation drew to a close. Although the truth of the matter is that uh, actually we ended up doing another 10 or 15 minutes or so of um, me uh, chucking in some bonus questions, um, which is pretty good stuff, actually. I'm going to save it um, up for some bonus material, which is gradually accumulating. I've got a few good bits and pieces now squirreled away, which I'm thinking of uh, sticking um maybe on a new Patreon channel, perhaps. More on that in due course. But for now, as always... Thanks very much for listening.